Welcome everyone to Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I am here with my co-host, JJ Jenflown. Hey everybody! And the title of this episode will be The Business of Human Smuggling. And before going forward, I will start with a story. And this is from a book I recently read, which I'm going to refer to as a source, called Migrant Refugee Smuggler Savior by Peter Tinty. It is a very nuanced, well-researched book that I highly recommend. Here's a story from that of a guy named Hafiz. He's from Afghanistan. So Hafiz and his group left a town called Herat, and they had enough cash on hand to make it to Europe. So they first paid a smuggler $500 per person to sneak across the Afghan-Iranian border, and then paid another smuggler $500 to travel through Iran. It took them three days to do that, and they spent two nights in safe houses along the way. They also changed vehicles several times throughout the trip with different drivers. When they arrived near the northwest city of Ermaya, their Iranian smugglers held them at gunpoint and demanded 1500 each. They didn't have much of an option of what to do, so they paid them. But then they were in the northwest part of Iran illegally and they didn't have enough money to continue their trip. So they found a cheap guest house and they searched for a trader in the market who could help them facilitate money from their hometown of Herat. So they reached out and were able to get a hold of their middle-class families and their families transferred them $15,000 across the four of them. And so they had that within two days and then they continued their journey. They found a Turkish smuggler who spoke Farsi and he agreed to take them over the Turkish border across the country and into Greece. And that also included lodging and meals, and that was for 2000 Once they crossed into Turkey, they uh, rode a string of buses and vans with other migrants from Afghanistan. Their handlers were armed. In the early morning, uh, th- there were three vans carrying Arabs and Africans, and their smugglers marched them toward the coast where there was a, a rubber dinghy not the strongest seafaring type of boat. Mm -hmm. There were around 50 of them, and they all were uh, told to get on the boat, and uh, if not, they were told to do so at gunpoint until they did. But after that, they uh, were all hanging out on a cafe in Lesbos, Greece, and they were quite happy there, and they still had around $7,000 for them to go to Sweden. And that was around uh, 2015. So that's a true story. And as they finished, they're like, we want to study and work. And we want to be safe. So that is the brief story of Hafiz going from Afghanistan and hoping to end up in Sweden. And I will note, at no point during that journey was there human trafficking. It was all human smuggling. And it was voluntary. Now, if you were paying attention, you would note there was a point where they were extorted of money, which was criminal activity, but that criminal activity was not human trafficking. So, JJ, (laughs) what is human trafficking, what is human smuggling, and why do we have such confusing terms? Refer to episode one, by the way. 
But Why, I'm so glad you asked, Seth. I happen to have the answer for you right now. So under under the U.S. law definition, uh, people smuggling or human smuggling, the terms are kind of used interchangeably, is the facilitation, transportation, attempted transportation, or illegal entry of a person or persons across an international border in violation of one or more countries' laws, either clandestinely or through deception, such as the use of fraudulent documents. And with the fraudulent documents thing, that comes up a lot. So that can be everything from like a manufactured ticket to fake IDs, fake passports, you know, whatever sort of the local identification card is. So sort of the, the faking of that. Some countries require sort of exit documentation. And so, you know, the smuggling of that sort of the creation of papers or that that passport or those papers, or those tickets were purchased or procured legally, but then given to someone else. So, you know, me trying to use Seth's passport to travel. What uh, we'll link you to down, down below, as always, like in our little extra section, is the protocol against the smuggling of migrants by land, sea, and air, which is a supplement that was added to the United Nations Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime. And that includes the procurement in order to obtain directly or indirectly a financial or other material benefit of the illegal entry of a person into a state party of which the person is not a national. And the reason why that was added to the organized crime convention that the UN has was this fear that individuals in organized crime had been using the smuggling of humans to, to gain a profit in both a smuggling people and then once they were in country then selling them which then it becomes a human trafficking situation or b which was more likely making money off of people paying them to smuggle them and states for security purposes are really into trying to hunt down who is inside their borders and who's not legally or illegally so that's that's where that comes from and so that then is the difference Human smuggling is not human trafficking. The problem is, is that because when you are being smuggled or traveling across borders or, or, or you know, across states, you are very then open to exploitation and open to trafficking because of that vulnerability. But smuggling involves consent. There's a customer and there's a smuggler. The client or the customer has paid the smuggler to travel. But that situation, because of the power differential there and because of what's going on, can very quickly slide into abuse, exploitation, and, and trafficking. And I think a, a good maybe way to see the difference between smuggling and trafficking is the, the situation we see via uh, Syrian refugees, people fleeing the violence in Syria. People fleeing Syria and leaving Syria and paying smugglers to maybe cross uh, the sea into Greece. Those people are not trafficked. They're being smuggled. Now, those people who are smuggling them, we've we've seen through them putting them in terrible boats. In, in the example Seth listed, like it's very exploitative. They're charging huge amounts of money for very unsafe transit. But that's still, they still, people have still consented to that. The difference is... If there was no consent, if they were being forced to travel, then that would be that would be trafficking. Another big difference is the source of the profiting. So in smuggling, the the money that is being made 
by the smuggler is due through like the transportation, the facilitation, the creation of illegal entry or illegal stay in another country. They're being paid directly by a client, maybe the client's family. And trafficking, the profit is coming from that exploitation of the victim, right? So there is a difference. I think that sometimes this gets confused when we're in human trafficking, when we talk about things, because so often in trafficking, people are often moved. But as we've talked about before in other podcasts, it's not necessary. You can be trafficked, you know, within your hometown without moving. Right. One could argue that you can be in a state of slavery or control without somebody profiting off your labor. But by and large, people who are trafficked, who are essentially modern slaves, they do that in order to profit off some form of labor, whether that would be farm work, whether that would be domestic servitude, whether that would be sex. Like they, they want a service from that person that they will profit, and that's central to trafficking. Whereas if they're going to profit off somebody who's smuggling, it's either because of the service mm-hmm. or because there's going to be extortion. One thing to point out about the narrative that I just read is that there were multiple smugglers involved, and this is not uncommon that you have there, there's not a single smuggler, there's not a single person in the process. There could be many. And uh, looking at some different stats, the uh, Mexican Migration Project, based out of Princeton, they did a survey in 2006, and 95% of first-time crossers in their sample had used smugglers. Another organization, the MMFRP, did a survey, and they had 80% to 93% of illegal crossers in the sample used smugglers during the 2000s. So we have 80 to 95% of surveys there. There was also a survey commissioned by the EU where they determined that all of the more than a million irregular migrants who entered the EU illegally in 2015 used the services of a smuggler at some point in the journey. Now, part of that is if you go back to somebody from Mexico who wants to get into the United States, you're in one country and you're going to another. That's much different than going from Syria to Germany. That, that's a much more complicated journey to get to Europe. There's more countries involved more languages involved, and as things have changed in North America, where you have a lot more people from south of Mexico coming up, then there's more cost involved for people there. But smugglers are the various people who profit by having businesses to facilitate movement because there is a demand. So while it is technically illegal, There is a demand, and there are a whole cast of characters who are helping people meet that demand. And who are those cast of characters? (laughs) Glad you asked. Among the people who've done research on that are John Salt and Jeremy Stein in 1997, where they developed a model where they looked at migrant smuggling as international business. They divided it into three stages— mobilization and recruitment in origin countries, transportation from origin to destination countries, and insertion and integration into destination countries. So it's essentially recruitment, transportation, and integration. Now, the initial person 
which you may have heard of, is the uh, broker or recruiter for labor trafficking, although we are talking about migration. For labor trafficking, you might have heard of labor brokers. For both smuggling and trafficking, you often have recruiters and labor brokers. So brokers and recruiters, whatever their motives, they are a starting point. And there are some who might be involved in a trafficking process from the get-go, or they might not. But they are part of the smuggling process. So one term you may have heard is uh, coyote. Some people will call people who are smuggling the person across the border a coyote, although in uh, there's a Planet Money podcast I'm linking to. They have a different term for that. In fact, multiple names. One of them is El Guia, the guide. There's the Caminadores, which is walkers, or, or the one I especially like, El Puriero, the chicken herder. What else might they be known as, JJ? Well, so my sort of experience or knowledge base, as we've talked about ad nauseum in these podcasts, is, is in the East Asian context. And so in the East Asian context, specifically within China, they're known as snakeheads, or in, in the Chinese, uh, shitol. But we're going to be calling them snakeheads because our listeners are largely English speaking, and so these snakeheads—it's a—it's an interesting term because it can be a plural or a singular, right? So it can be a person that's actively smuggling, or it can be the term for a whole gang of people. Normally, they're tied to or directly a part of Asian um, or Chinese organized crime, and so they're groups of people who smuggle people to other countries. A lot of them used to come directly from uh, Fujian province, but now it's it's much more sort of widespread, and they primarily smuggle uh, Chinese or other East Asian natives to Western countries like Western Europe, North America, Australia, and then sometimes even Taiwan and Japan. So I think that's also one of the things I do want to touch on is that I think there's this belief that when people smuggling happens, particularly in the coyote context, that it's people from South America into the U.S. only, that is not the case. Uh, people smuggling happens across the world. It is people perpetually trying to leave the place that they are from for whatever reason to seek out life somewhere else. And relating to Syria, one thing that has made Syria a lot different is they were not a low-income country. A lot of people who have left were middle-class or upper-lower-class compared to other countries, and so they had relatively more money than, say, people in East Africa. So that has made them an attractive business opportunity for many smugglers, and it's actually grown the smuggling industry. So to uh, finish up on the players, we have the recruiters. They will be first port of contact. They might openly recruit. They might even have posters and signs up. Or they might be somebody that is sought out. At this point, trust is important because if you want to get somebody and their friends and their family members to go, you need to have a degree of trust. And there are ways of determining that a person has reached their destination of finishing transactions. And so the, it's not a complete black box. Mm -hmm. And it's not that everyone can get away with 
not fulfilling their promises and exploiting because then smuggling will end. And one of the things, if we didn't get clear with the earlier numbers on how many people have used smugglers, like again, most smugglers are not traffickers. Most people in the process are not trafficking. They are smuggling. It's illegal as far as countries are concerned, but it's a different illegal activity. So you have the recruiters and they start and they work with transporters, which there might be multiple transporters and multiple in-between people who are having cars, vans. They, they might go from one car to another car, just like they might go from a smaller boat to a bigger boat. And the brokers have to accept money and facilitate the journey. Now, not everyone can afford a full package. So a full package you know, might be the deluxe where they know what's going to happen and they, they have nice accommodations. But uh, others use the pay-as-you-go model, which is what you saw with Hafiz in my initial story. Next, you have the intelligence gatherers, the, who are the informers and the spotters. So they'll keep up on the laws, on transit procedures, on regulations, on asylum systems, law enforcement, and patterns of border enforcement. They could even be involved in a payola, paying off border people. Paying off border people does include Border Patrol of the United States. There, there has been corruption to mm -hmm. a degree because cartels who are now involved in smuggling, there's profit to be made. And uh, cartels have a lot of money, both for human smuggling and for drug smuggling. And so they can afford to make good offers that are enticing to people who are in law enforcement. But it's not just law enforcement. It's people on the other side, people who are going to do housing, people who are going to help people get on their feet in another country. The entire process is very multifaceted. The one other group I haven't mentioned is uh, there may be multiple types of security involved, whether they are uh, security guards or enforcers who can both protect their traveling assets, protect them from a rival gang, but can also uh, threaten the people that they're transporting. And it's, uh, it's a very precarious thing. And for me, I, I once got a car in Siem Reap, Cambodia, where neither of them spoke English, but somebody helped facilitate it, and, and I paid him a tip because he was, he was the recruiter guy. And I spent two hours just kind of looking and listening and hoping we would get to our destination. It bears no real similarity to this whole smuggling operation, but it's like just, just a small glimpse of like the unknown and just hoping that the person that you paid will get you to the other side and not knowing. It can be really stressful. I was stressed. Have you ever had a experience like that overseas, JJ? <laughs> Very much. <laughs> Very much so. Like, how do you feel? Well, no, it's, it's just that you feel alien. You feel uh, like you're fundamentally missing out on something or like missing... Like everyone else sort of understands the game and you don't know that you're playing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, we, we have these systems in like the US where we place a lot of faith in our systems and, and we don't know the local relationships and a lot of things that are involved in a different country. And so when traveling, it's like, what can I trust here? <laughs> and it's a bit of a leap of faith. So 
we have the smallest glimpse of just like there, there, there's something about giving somebody money and not knowing what's going to happen with the system that makes you feel vulnerable, a little bit scared, and hoping that the destination is worth it and that you know the people that you're with won't exploit you. When I got off a official bus in Bangkok, I got on a tuk-tuk and I was taken to a fake embassy. And I knew about it because I had read about it on TripAdvisor before I traveled. And they said, oh, well, they've been doing this in the past where you haven't crossed the border and they take you to a place where they're going to charge you a lot of money. They'll eventually get you there, but they're, you're going to pay a lot more and be kind of extorted. There's unknowns. Like you can't plan because there's so many... I mean, we talk about this with sort of like the vulnerable structures people when you can't make a plan because so many things are up in the air and can change. Yeah, and you don't always know what you don't know. And so that's why you want a smuggler <laughs> in the first place, though, because you're at least hoping, even though you're unsure about them, that they know the system and they can help you avoid even worse outcomes. So a few other aspects. Uh, JJ mentioned the uh, forgery and so on. Like There can be stolen documentation, which could be passports or visas. There could be forged ones. Different countries have different processes. Mm -hmm. It could also be some form of identity theft or just using somebody's identity in order to get real documentation. So the, the concerns that people have about people coming to the United States and knowing who they are are not unfounded. The degree of risk, we can debate that, but the, the degree of forgery and dodgy, dodgy documentation in the smuggling process is a very real one. Lastly, there are transactions, various ways of doing that, such as hawala, which is a more like paper-based, trust-based way that's kind of, you know, the pre-Bitcoin <laughs> way of doing things. But it's outside the normal financial system, and so it's harder to track. In fact, very difficult to track. So that's a few parts. You you have any other aspects to mention with the players or documentation or money? Yeah, well, so in in the snakehead tradition, the way that people are are paid is a little bit more I don't want to say like vague, but there there are a couple different methods, right? So depending on whether you're coming with like an altered or stolen passport, a fake visa or in in some cases the bribing of officials or like tour groups, for example, so maybe like they'll make a fictionalized tour group, maybe they say that's coming from Hong Kong to the U.S., you know, just to see, like, Broadway shows, you know? But then when the people arrive, they never go home to, to get around immigration controls. So one of the ways, though, to get that payment can happen with you pay directly to them before you leave. You pay maybe half and half. But there are also cases where what will happen and this is when it gets into the weird sort of exploitation possible trafficking thing is you pay up front and then once you arrive in country so let's say that i'm traveling from mainland china to the u.s once i arrive in country uh there's a call then made to my family at home saying if you don't then pay additional fees maybe to someone who is in mainland china i can't uh, be released. They're going to hold me. And so then it becomes sort of a ransom situation. One of the things that I'm linking y'all to is a list that was put by the Global Black Black Market Information. 
uh, system, which has sort of smuggling fees, the average smuggling fee that it costs to get people out and where they can go to. And one of the things that it includes is that, you know, to get out of China and get to the USA, it's about $50,000. And we'll get to more cost shortly. Yeah. And, but so like, think of that sort of variant cost, but I've heard it go up to about 70000 in the US. So I think it all depends on sort of where in China you're traveling from, what stops you have to make along the way. But remember, because you're working with a gang of people, there can be multiple people who will charge you at multiple times. How you normally get connected with the snakehead, I mean, Seth has talked about sort of the different sort of people along the procurement route. But generally, like, you know, you have to, as a client, contact someone who is known to be a smuggler or have connections to a smuggler, and in the Chinese case, someone who's tied to organized crime, and then go from there and, and travel from there. But it is it is definitely a little bit more difficult. And then especially when you think about cost-wise, you know, a lot of people are going to be making these these very large, expensive payments via, you know, installments. Right. And when there's installments, if the goods don't get delivered, then there's lost profit. Though that said, smuggling operations, especially where there's a lot of throughput, again, like going into Europe versus Mm -hmm. China, which is a bigger journey, but where there's a lot of people coming, like from Syria, that's where they could more easily say, we're going to give up this boat so we could have these other boats go. The same thing happens at the U.S. border where they just decide we're, we're going to have this car or bus van be the one that, that gets caught so that we can get our others through. So that way, you know, border control feel good and, you know, we can get our profit and everyone's happy. Well, not really, but that's part of the way they play the game. And to look at the whole you know, raging river water thing or the Bruce Lee will be like water. Like if you close one route, then the water just redirects and it, it can have an impact. There's been some fences and so on that have gone up that have limited traffic. But, you know, as long as we're talking about fences, there's a difference between a country like Saudi Arabia bordering off Yemen or Israel bordering off than the United States bordering off. We have a lot more border in the United States to cover. So what can be effective for Israel is a lot harder for the U.S. to be effective. Getting more into cost, we've talked a bit about who pays for it. The primary ways are personal and family savings from home. Mm -hmm. Some people will save for the journey or they'll liquidate their assets. That's part of what makes it rough when people are trafficked from this process because if you've liquidated your assets and then it doesn't pay off the way you expect, it's really hurtful because it can pay off. That's partially why people are doing this. It's an investment. And then uh, financing by family members who are already in the destination country. They could also be a part of facilitating smuggling operations, the latter half of it. Or loans from outside the family. And loans are also one of the dangerous things in terms of trafficking because it gives leverage, it can put person in a vulnerable situation. And as the costs go up, then they might take out bigger loans. And so then once people are in debt, you have various types of debt bondage or indentured servitude that can happen. Because a lot of times people are paid something, but through creative accounting, through overcharging, through moving the goalpost, 
it can be difficult to get to pay that off or more difficult than they expect. Yeah, so one of the things that I, I can show you kind of maybe as an example for that that would be helpful is sort of a reference to one of the most famous snakeheads or smugglers uh, in tradition, and that was a woman who went by the name of Sister Ping. Uh, literally, that's how she's referred to. Uh, there are books about her. I think there's been a made-for-TV movie. She definitely is... She's kind of an Al Capone of the snakeheads, if you will. And her her deal was that she ran a human smuggling operation where people were taken from Hong Kong to New York City. And so this was also bringing people in from mainland China and other East Asian countries into Hong Kong, then out of Hong Kong into New York, and then from New York into other parts of the U.S. and sometimes Canada. And she ran this ring from 1984 until 2000 when she was arrested in Hong Kong. She gets extradited back to the U.S., was charged and held, and then finally passed away in prison at, um, in 2014 from, from cancer. So she starts and ran her operation entirely around cargo ships. So what she did was that she would charter cargo ships, bringing in... She would basically buy out the hold of a cargo ship that was bringing in legitimate and registered cargo. And then she would have all of her smuggling clients, uh, many with forged identification documents that got them into Hong Kong. They would then be hidden in, in the below deck, in the belly of the ship for months at a time. And then when the ship came and went to unload in, in New York Harbor, she would then send out like rowboats and things, and then the customers were removed from the belly of the ship and brought into the U.S., Again, not a trafficker in this moment. She's a, just a smuggler. Now, her the people that she did brought in did report sort of mass exploitation. They paid a lot of mon money. They were in prison below deck for sometimes up to months at a time because cargo ships are slow moving. And because it was months at a time, so they're trapped in darkness and very, very cramped quarters, very little food, very little water, no access to you know bathrooms or toilets or things like that. And in some cases, there were... When uh, her, when the little rowboats would go out to get people, they would capsize, and so there were there were drowning deaths. What moved her into a trafficking sort of situation is that she would then do collections on people. So if she felt that the people who hadn't paid appropriate smuggling fees, or that they were unlikely to pay her the fee once they arrived in country, what she would do is that she would then hold them hostage until they were released. And she charged about twenty-five dollars to $45,000 per person. So she would then hold, hold people in like factories or in storage containers and, and contact their outside family and say, you know, if you don't pay, we're just going to let them starve to death. And that's how, that's how she made her, the rest of her, her smuggling money, shall we say. What got her caught then was further exploitation because a in the Rockaways in New York, one of the ships that she had uh, ran aground, so it, it hit some it hit some rocks and it capsized, and so 300 or so people. They don't have exact numbers because there are, there's no manifest of the people on board. So there's they think that maybe 300 died, but then there's also reports that maybe 58 Chinese or so 
uh, also passed away that she that she's tied to who were found in an airtight truck in Dover. So in the UK, so the truck uh, was not appropriate for people to be in it. It was sealed and people died there. So what you have is that in, in, in an attempt to make money, a lot of times smugglers will be extremely exploitative and it will result in the deaths of their quote-unquote clients, but they're not seeking to make money off of the suffering of their clients. It's, it's just sort of like a byproduct. Yeah, and it's a different form of exploitation and criminality. Mm-hmm. Where they're they're moving beyond the kind of precarious service provider to you know ransom extortion, yeah, which definitely puts them in the bad category there, and then other more extreme forms like trafficking, where they're exploiting their labor for a time. That's one thing that that's happened in Libya, which we did a podcast on. Is there's just certain players there to where when people get to a certain part of Libya where there might be people who are trafficking oriented and who decide that they're going to use people in a trafficking way for a period of time to make money and then let them go. It makes for a really, really rough journey on something that's already not the smoothest journey. But then this, I think, introduces... The, the difficult portion of this, which is people will then turn around and say, well, why don't people who are smuggled then once they're in the country turn around and inform on the person who smuggled them, particularly if, you know, say in transit, one of their loved ones has died as well. And because this pain was so infamous and because she died while in custody, um, a lot of people thought that immediately a lot of her victims, and again, no one knows how many people she brought in, but they think that like legitimately it's in the hundreds of thousands. Because you can fit a lot of people in the cargo hold of a passenger ship. She did it for decades, etc. So how, how do you manage this? Well, like how do you manage people not immediately informing on you? Well, when Sis Pink died... Like newspaper reporters sort of descended on on Chinatown in New York, where a lot of her clients had settled, and people responded with, "Well, no, she helped immigrants. She helped us. Um, that if people died in transit, she paid for their funeral. That she did give you know food to the poor. That." She, she may have made a lot of money, but she brought a lot of people to, to the U.S. And what I think people have to remember is that while a lot of people die in transit, while a lot of people are exploited in transit, people don't willingly sort of put themselves into the cargo hold of a boat for months if where they're coming from is working out awesomely for them. You know, not to be flippant, but, you know, China from 1984 on was not necessarily a great place to be if you were already of an economically depressed lower class, if you were someone who had experienced purges on behalf of the government, if you were someone who was not looked upon favorably, you know, and with favor by the communist government, or if you were an ethnic minority or a religious minority within China, uh, 
you know, you see in 88 student, 1988 student revolts in 1989, you have the Tiananmen Square massacre uh, where then people are, are routed or, or, or getting gathered up. You have attacks on people who are considered enemies of the state. So even though with the 90s, we have the opening up of China and things sort of changing within country, you can certainly understand why people are very motivated to leave China. Uh, additionally, it it was and still is quite difficult for the average Chinese citizen to, to leave China. You can't just apply for a passport. You have to apply for your passport locally, then get your visa. And then once you have a passport and a visa, then you can apply to the um, PSB, the Public Security Bureau, to get an exit permit. And there's a lot of sort of little things that can happen along the way where they check uh, the the security bureau will check to see, you know, how much money in the bank do you have? Do you have ties? Do you have a lot of family left in China? Do you have family ties in the country that you're going to? What's your education level? What are the chances that you'll come home? So you can't just like apply for a visa to go on vacation and then decide to overstay as we see actually happening sometimes with a lot of U.S. citizens traveling to other countries. I, I had a friend more of a colleague in China. Well, I was there from the U.S. who overstayed his his Chinese visa by like three months, which is a terrible idea. China will, will, will charge you a lot of money for that. And if you can't pay the money, you'll be put in prison. But you're not going to be, you know, sort of forcibly detained in, in a gulag, which is kind of what would happen if you're a Chinese citizen who was caught trying to, to exit the country without these permits. So for the chance of a better life and making money that they could send home in the form of remittances, a lot of people were willing to suffer a lot to get here. And so the person or the persons who get them out of their dangerous situation, even if you're paying them, even if they're mistreating you, you can still sort of view them as, uh, to quote from this New York Times article that did direct interviews, sort of ethnography style, with people who she had smuggled – uh, she was a savior. So it's it's a very complicated psychological thing that's happening. Well, and this is part of the difference between economic migrants and people who are fleeing conflict or environments where there is little hope and there are multiple actors, gangs, armies who could be dangerous. So we had talked a while back about uh, the Golden Triangle, which is Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador where there's gangs, there's forced gang recruitment, there's trafficking, there's labor challenges, exploitation. And so we've had more people from that part of Central America. As of 2010, it was estimated that there were 1.5 million unauthorized immigrants from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras in the U.S. So there's been a lot more people, not from Mexico, but from parts of Central America that uh, have been having it rough. Well, and then I think there's also one thing, though, to touch on, which is why, what, like the terms that we're using here, like a refugee or migrant or economic migrant, are kind of set by the country itself, even though, like, those, because those are legal terms, right? And we talk about this in our, in our North Korean, the podcast we did on North Korea, which is to say every, every country in the world recognizes anyone leaving North Korea as a refugee except for China, who classifies them as economic migrants because of legal agreements that China has with North Korea. So depending on where you are, you're hitting different 
situations legally and in terms of the protections that then you're offered. And so it's been challenging for our immigration system, but not just the United States, worldwide, that you have so many people who are fleeing situations and have what could be argued are legitimate asylum or refugee claims. Those two are close enough. If you reach the U.S. border, it's asylum request. If you otherwise register with the U.N., you're a refugee. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can unofficially be one of those, but you're not fitting the legal definition of refugee or asylee. And as again, as we've talked about before, you can be someone who has come into country as someone who has a valid refugee claim, but it can take anywhere from days to weeks to months to years for your refugee claim to be processed and you to be legally defined as a refugee. And during that time, even while you're waiting for your asylum claim to be processed, you are then considered a migrant until you've gone through this legal process. So the easiest way to think about it is, for example, when I got married, I had to go, before I could get married in church, I had to go to the courthouse and file this legal documentation in the U.S. that my husband and I were planning to get married. We had to get a marriage license. There was then a four-day gap between when we signed the marriage license and we were legally in the eyes of the law married, and then when we had our church wedding that for us made us feel like in the eyes of our, and God and our particular religion, we were married. When you're going through that transitional period, you're both like married but not married. Same thing happens when you get divorced. You filed for divorce. Your paperwork has been filed, but you're not divorced yet. But if anyone asked you, you'd probably be like, well, yeah, I'm divorced. I'm not with anybody anymore, but you're still got to wait. And so it's all, it's, it's that sort of complicated process of you're both a migrant and a refugee until legally recognized as otherwise. Because life is complicated, particularly when there's legalities involved. Okay. The cost of crossing. Is expensive. The cost of crossing is too damn high, Seth. <laughs> Which no one probably even knows anymore because I'm old and it's an old meme. Mm-hmm. It's really not fun for anyone but me. But I enjoyed saying it. As you may know, and as we've mentioned, because of tighter border security, people who cross for work have to plan to stay. And people who are who are already here plan to stay. The U.S before this administration was already spending over $200 million a year just on deportations. So it's not cheap to just deport a lot of people. It's also complicated, too, in the case of minors. Because if you have, say, as sometimes people will pay to have like a child smuggled in, into the U.S. to get them out of a rough situation, you can't send a five-year-old back to a country where he's got nowhere to go without an adult. So what do you do? When you have a hard border... It does things like increase the cost. And thus far, the cost has not been a sufficient deterrent, especially when you're fleeing conflict, where you could say, I'm going to get a loan and I'm going to cross into the U.S., where I will be safer here as an illegal immigrant than I will be in El Salvador. Then I'd say that's a rational way to look at things. There's also the issue, too, that pops up within this of people who are kind of identified as stateless. For example, let's say that your parents fled and entered into, you know, fled from from mainland China into Japan with the help of a smuggler. You're born there, but because of Japan's particular laws about nationality and the fact that your parents weren't there legally, you are not legally a Japanese resident. They then 
pay a smuggler to bring them into Western Europe. They're there for a number of years. They have your brother. Your brother is born. He is able to be registered, say, maybe as a, as a Dutch resident, but the rest of the family is not. And then the family pays an additional smuggler to get you all to the U.S. because you've got a distant relative in Texas who says that he can find work for all of you. But you get caught in Texas and you're going to get deported. Where are you going to get deported to? Where do they send you? <laughs> because there's multiple countries of origin. There's multiple legal or illegal citizenship paperwork. You may not speak the language of the country they're attempting to deport you to initially. You may not have never have actually lived in mainland China. So where, where are they going to put you? So it gets very, very complicated. Very, very complicated. Especially now in this modern context where sometimes states cease to exist. Uh, where, you know, you can't get deported, you know, back to the Soviet Union. <laughs> you know, like, where are you going to mm -hmm. go? Like, you can't. That's not an option. It's not an option. The costs have changed over time. And it's hard to talk about smuggling costs because when looking at the data, there's the cost of crossing the border, but then there's the cost of the entire process, which might involve a lot more than just crossing the border. Although when you're talking about Mexico, you're, you're likely talking about something that's closer to reality of a final number. In other words, the journey is not going to be very far. So there's not going to be as many people involved, not as many modes of transportation. So uh, Department of Homeland Security had put together a report, which I will link to, where they put together data from a few different sources, including their own, from 1993 to 2007, and showed a fairly constant rise in prices. And that relates to both security, but also what smugglers can charge and what they choose to charge. So it's their cost, but also perception, like lots of market cost, since this is partially a market-based cost, just an illicit market. So it ranged in 93 from about, looks like 700 to almost 1,500 to cross the Mexican border for Mexican nationals. And then in 2007, it had gone up to a base of around 1,500 to about 2,400. Now looking at the Mexican Migration Project, and they have data from 75 to 2013, you know, they have cost in 2013 of between 4,000 and 6,000, depending on whether you want to cross anywhere or whether you want to cross near Tijuana or Juarez. So where you decide to cross, which border, there's data on that in uh, that D Department of Homeland Security report, which is kind of fascinating just to see, oh, if you are near Tucson, here's the spikes here, but it's pretty flat near San Diego. So there's those ways of looking at cost. Also, uh, under the Trump administration, which is partially driven by Trumpian rhetoric, which I have a problem with, because you can have tighter border security without demonizing the people that are crossing. 
However, because of that, because of all of that, after he was elected, uh, smugglers and andor cartels who smuggle decided that they would raise their fees. So, in November of 2016, the cost was said to be around 3,500, but then in January, smugglers were charging more like 8,000 because of the new policies making it riskier. The degree to which they were riskier at that moment can be debated since the administration had just changed, but they had doubled the cost at that point. And so those are some factors. So one source for uh, black market information is Scope, which is a great name, Scope, subtitled Global Black Market Information. And they have a page, Prices Charged by Human Smugglers based on data they could find. And there's some really interesting data. I mean, this is more relative, like it's not going to be always true, but it's helpful for a comparison. So cost from Vietnam to Europe, like around 28,000, which again is a more complicated process. From Somalia to the United States, 10,000. North Korea to South Korea, 6,000. Iraq to the UK, 10,000. They list the cost from Mexico of 4,000 by land and 9,000 by sea. By sea being normally the safer option. Yeah, so if we build that wall, we won't be walling off the water. But when you talk about border security, there's mitigation and deterrence, which are, are valid national security perspectives. Since I have taken a few national security type classes, that is the way our government talks about it. That is the way security professionals look at things. And so it's a, it's a valid way to say, hey, maybe if we do X, it'll be a deterrent. But it's different talking about deterring or having less people here illegally. That's different than let's eliminate illegal immigration and have zero people here illegally, which if I haven't said that explicitly before, is impossible for the United States to do that. That will never happen. And we haven't sufficiently dealt with market forces. We want to talk about it with other things. We want to talk about market forces with trade. We want to talk about it with our economy. But we don't want to talk about it with labor supply and migration. And so we have illicit markets that have grown as there's been destabilization. It's one of the reasons to talk about foreign aid, because maybe if you help build up a country's economy, then they're not going to fall apart and have a bunch of migrants at our borders. Then there's the human rights aspects of it and humanitarian aspects. It's also that if you make if you make transport safer, you're you're going to have less people dying in cargo ships and also less people who then are open to exploitation once they arrive in country, particularly exploitation done by criminal groups, you know, uh, international syndicates and whatnot, because then they feel that they have options for, you know, reporting to to police or other authority figures. Right. But there's like like I think we talked about with Leanne, it's just there's a lot of things that would need to be. Solving solving human trafficking issues is not just a fix one thing <laughs> and go from there sort of issue. It's it's requires a lot of work altogether. But to the question, why don't people come here legally to the United States? A lot of times they can't. Because they can't. Yeah, and I think that's pretty clear in, in reference to 
the China case, too, where they can't leave legally. And if you can't leave legally, you can't enter legally either, which is also why I think that then you see people, when we're talking about the cost of trafficking, but also the cost of smuggling more broadly directly, is that you know someone may get smuggled from North Korea into South Korea, but once they're in South Korea, may determine that South Korea is not the right place for them to be, and they may need to to go somewhere else. And so that's expensive. You know, you may be doing multiple travels. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of how to handle refugees and migrants, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that when we were we as in in, in the U.S. and then the international community more broadly. When they were formulating the sort of laws and regulations for it, it came attached and from existing crime legislation. It wasn't a new creation. It wasn't based on like a harm reduction or like safety bonus. Well, I'm thankful for what the Bush and Obama administrations did in anti-trafficking. It was very insufficient, especially in terms of like victim identification, in terms of the overall system. And then when we have things that could in some ways make trafficking worse and which don't solve the underlying problems that are proposed by the Trump administration. It's like there's still going to be smuggling. It's still going to be costly. People will still be in precarious situations. There will still be people that will take advantage of it. And that's that. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Be safe out there. Goodbye, everyone. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.